0: something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Erica Glazner is a plant lover, horticulturalist, writer, author, and a speaker. She is passionate about all things green and is currently the Community Involvement and Events Manager for Piedmont Park Conservancy, the nonprofit that supports Piedmont Park in Atlanta, Georgia. She is fortunate to have traveled throughout the U.S. and to have discovered wonderful gardens and gardeners as the host for A Gardener's Diary for 13 years on HGTV. Recently, she worked as the senior producer for Growing a Greener World, which airs on PBS stations across the country. She loves to share her knowledge about plants and gardening with the conviction that the world would be a better place if everyone gardened, no matter where they live or what they believe. This is episode 53, A Gardener's Walk, with Erica Glazner. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Erica, when designing outdoor spaces, why does plant selection matter?
1: Plant selection is critical in terms of success, making you feel good about what you've done, being happy, having plants that do well just for success. How you go about designing outdoor spaces with plants, the first step is to know your environment, know your own front yard, backyard containers for your front porch, whatever your definition is for whatever type of garden you're starting. Start small so that you're successful and you can build on those successes. If you live in the South, look around at your environment, what's thriving, what's doing well, and take your cues from Mother Nature because she's been at it a long time. I think that ornamental plants are great, but I think native plants give us a lot of flexibility and they're forgiving. They're adaptable to our environment. So I would look at a landscape that includes at least a good percentage of native plants or plants that have adapted to our region.
0: I've heard you use the term grow where you're planted. Would you explain that?
1: Yes. Gardeners, I think a lot of times we are tempted, understandably, by the beautiful photos we see in magazines or books. We don't have a lot of magazines anymore, I guess, so it's online. Or the gardens that we visit in other places. Maybe you visit a garden in Connecticut and you come back to Georgia. Maybe you saw the most beautiful delphiniums. In Connecticut, those delphiniums are getting the type of weather that they're going to thrive in. In Georgia, you're probably going to be better off to have larkspur. They won't be as big and they won't be as sexy, but they'll be successful and they'll give you a similar type feel. When I say grow where you're planted, look at what thrives in your region, what thrives in your yard. Look at your habitat. Is it hot and dry? Do you have areas that are moist? The soil stays damp. Got to select plants that are going to do well in the environment that you have.
0: Would that be like a microclimate?
1: Yes, I guess you could say I have a pretty big garden and my plan is to downsize. (laughs) When I first moved into my home about 15 years ago, all that I had was a front yard full of English ivy, overgrown tangled masses of azaleas and other miscellaneous shrubs and a few dead dogwoods. I made a decision to hire someone to help pull out by hand Yes, truly, by hand, all the English ivy. Only good thing was that underneath there was a lot of really good broken down leaf matter. I added compost. I had pretty decent soil. I set out to make a plan. Nothing fancy, but I decided what I wanted in the full sun areas in terms of colors and grouping things together and plan to have something blooming or something of interest at every season. And 15 years later, I will say I was and am successful. Although I have a lot of weeds, I also have a lot of different things blooming at different times. And it brings me a lot of pleasure.
0: How long did it take you to tame that ivy?
1: I guess it was a couple of weeks. I literally rented a dumpster and put it in my driveway. When I think about it now, it seems pretty ambitious. I had some come back, little pieces over time, and occasionally I'll see some in my side yard. But I really try not to use chemicals if I can at all avoid it. If there's poison ivy, I probably have to spot spray, which I do run into that with a some kind of weed killer that kills poison ivy. Yeah, yeah. And it loves me.
0: It's hard to get rid of poison ivy. Oh, awful. (laughs) Yeah. And the roots will get you too. I had a neighbor who did a trench for his uh, irrigation system, and he got down in the trench and was doing some work with his pipe. And the next day, it's just covered in poison ivy. It was on his site before and from the root systems it got him.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yep.
0: What are the criteria you use to consider making the plant selections you made in your garden as far as that blooming sequence and the seasonality of it?
1: I've grouped colors together. I have a curved garden. I grouped pastels at one end and then. With the herbaceous perennial plants, I grouped pinks and blues together and some white and then shrub for anchors. I've got one little spot with hot colors, few oranges and red. Try to have something of interest at every season. I love daffodils and I think they are one of the greatest easiest bulbs to grow. They're great because you plant them, the rodents don't dig them up because they're poisonous. They persist and as long as they are in a decent Well-drained soil and they get plenty of sun when they're getting their winter baking. If you have deciduous shade and you plant them where they get plenty of sun in the spring when they're blooming and then it starts to get shady as the foliage is ripening off, it's great. They typically multiply. There's so many different varieties, a lot of good varieties for the South. Daffodils are the best.
0: Yeah, I enjoy those very much myself.
1: I am a tree hugger. I think trees and the tree canopy are some of my passion, and I get to work with that. I live in a a neighborhood in Atlanta that was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, and it's full of trees. People come over here to walk. I just think we can't have enough really great trees, but I would stress native trees. The more I learn, the more I feel that we really do need to pay attention to getting back to grow where you're planted. That doesn't mean I don't love a flowering cherry tree or a Japanese maple. I have Japanese maple in my garden. I also planted this year a white oak, because if you want to be a host for pollinators, then put in a white oak, I think, four or 500 different moths that it's a host for. Native doesn't mean a front yard full of weeds. It's a much broader subject and with a little education, yeah. an organization that people may want to know about, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, is the Xerces Society. And they have a wonderful publication you can download. It's divided in by regions. They make it easy for you because they lay out what's going to be blooming at what season in terms of pollinator plants and uh, host plants and then nectar plants. It's very easy to follow. I do think people can sometimes be overwhelmed by the choices or they think, oh, I can't do native. I think you have to have a holistic approach to your garden. It has to please you, but you do have to educate yourself. I would never plant English ivy in any garden. I may plant it in a pot because there are lots of different types that have pretty foliage, but I would not plant English ivy. I would not plant bamboo. And that's just because it's going to create a problem for you or your neighbors.
0: Just don't know where to stop. It just keeps going.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And you have to educate yourself. I just keep getting back to start small so you're successful because you can have five big containers filled with beautiful combinations of perennials and bulbs and get a lot of satisfaction out of that and plant one for every season.
0: Would you like to give us some examples of maybe how we could do that with every season?
1: Sure. A plant that I'm just crazy about that's not native is Daphne odora, fragrant winter Daphne. And I think planting it in a container is how I've been most successful in the past. I will say that it's a plant that can be persnickety and it does what friends and I call the Daphne death dance for no apparent reason, where it just one day you walk out and it's died and you thought you had it in a well drained soil and plenty of air circulation and good light. And by golly, it just died. But then if it's happy, I gave one to a friend years ago, and I swear it's five, six feet tall and five or six feet across. As far as I know, I don't want to jinx it. It's still thriving. That could be something you could plant in a container. You can do grasses in containers. You can do all sorts of perennials in containers. And you can add bulbs and tuck them in. I just saw some beautiful containers of combinations of spring bulbs at the Atlanta Botanical Garden yesterday.
0: Daphne would be a winter bloomer, right?
1: That's right. Daphne odora blooms in late winter, very, very early spring. Yeah. I also grow herbs in pots. I have pot outside of my front door where I grow oregano, which is perennial, and I grow thyme, which is perennial. And then in the summer, I'll have pots full of basil because I love to cook. I'll have two or three different types of basil. And then I have a dwarf pomegranate in a pot. That provides interest most of the year.
0: How does it provide that interest?
1: gets orange flowers, and then it gets little miniature pomegranate fruit, and then the foliage is fairly persistent, so it usually looks pretty good. Are they edible? I don't know. I've never eaten one. I don't think you would grow it for the edible part Mm -hmm. of it. As far as other edibles, gosh, they have varieties of figs you could grow in pots, blueberries. I love blueberries. If you want an easy edible plant to grow, I have about four varieties in my backyard and they're 10 feet tall and I don't do anything. If people are interested in blueberries and they live in the South, I would definitely recommend the rabbit eye type. I was just thinking about that before we started talking. There are one, two, three, four, five, six varieties that should be available. Premier, Powder Blue, Bright Well. Tiff Blue which is T I F B L U E and then one I've never heard of on the list is Becky Blue but I grow the ones that I just spoke of and then the other one I left off is Climax those are all rabbit eye I've had great success the rabbit eyes tend to be heat tolerant what seems to make a difference with the fruit production is the weather if we have a really nice rainy spring as we did if one of the past two years we had so much production I could go out with my daughter when they were bearing fruit and get a big bowl of blueberries every day over a period of almost a month.
0: It's amazing that I even get any to bring back to the house because I eat them as I pick them.
1: That's right. And I used to try netting them. Birds would just get caught in it, and I've just given that up. I just try to get out there before the birds get out there. You just have to plant a few extra plants. The reason to plant more than one variety is so that you get a longer season of bloom and then a longer season of fruiting.
0: That makes sense, yeah. What's your favorite plant?
1: It's hard to pick just one. It depends on the season. Magnolia macrophylla is on the list of my top 10 favorite plants. It is beautiful, big, bold. The flowers are huge. They're fragrant. The leaves are big. It's a native. The only thing I've ever heard about it that surprised me was that the flowers can be toxic to bees. It's pollinated by beetles, which is not surprising because of the white flowers. Despite that, I've never seen any bees around mine. I have one in the backyard. I have a deck off the back of our house, and it's up one story. And so, we look out to the magnolia when it's in bloom and the leaves are long and they're so beautiful they're bright green and the flowers are big and fragrant as the leaves turn in the fall they get silvery on the undersides and then when they fall on the ground i think they're beautiful you can hire someone to pick them up if they bother you they're attractive I like plants that look good more than just for a few minutes.
0: Have an interest year round,
1: Right. That said, I also love the Arkansas Blue Star, which is called Amsonia hubrechtii, and it looks like a miniature willow throughout the spring and summer. It has pale blue flowers. They're not too showy. They appear in the spring. And then in the fall, it can turn just butter yellow before the needles turn brown and then drop off. It's a beautiful native and it has a long season of interest.
0: Was there any others?
1: Well, I do love old roses. I don't grow any hybrid fancy roses that require. Plants have to be tough in my garden. If you got to spray them and fuss over them and have special gatherings to get them to grow, they're not going to make it. I don't have an irrigation system. I just water as needed, but I do have some old roses. One that I've Loved for years and it does really well. And I've recommended it to lots of people. It's called Zephyrin, Z-E-P-H-R-I-N-E, Druin, D-R-O-U-H-I-N. And it doesn't have thorns and it is a rambler. I have it on a sort of a trellisy form. And it is very fragrant. The flowers are cerise pink. It takes a little bit of shade, which is nice for a rose. That's a good doer and one that has continued to please me year after year.
0: Sounds like a wonderful one. Yeah. Let's talk about tree canopies and the services they do for pollinators.
1: When it comes to the tree canopy, one thing that I've learned working in an urban park is there are obvious things that we all know that trees provide, shade, clean air, but we maybe sometimes forget about the habitat that they provide, not only for birds and butterflies and the different stages, moths, they're a host plant or lots of critters at different stages, even squirrels. And maybe some of these you wouldn't want in your garden, but just the whole ecosystem and raccoons and acorns. And if you have a pignut hickory, that's going to provide a food source. And they're small. It's the pignut hickory is a nice canopy tree because the nuts are small. So they don't make a huge mess in your yard. You have to have space. White oak is a wonderful, wonderful tree for pollinators. All the oaks are great, all of our native oaks. The red oak, the white oak, the schumar oak, you have to have space. One tree that's just really wonderful, it's our tallest southeastern native, and that's the tulip poplar, hmm. which a lot of people may know. The flowers have those wonderful orange and yellow colors. I guess it's called a tulip poplar because they're shaped a little bit like a tulip, but not really in my mind. But big, beautiful foliage. And then the understory trees, like our native fringe tree, red buds, and dogwoods. The true canopy trees, the larger trees, the oaks, the hickories, the maples, sort of have to plan for the future. I live in a neighborhood where we have lots and lots of trees, Sometimes people move in and the first thing they do is take down trees to have more lawn area, which I kind of don't understand, but everybody has a different opinion. But the trees do such a service to help us and they make you feel better when you're walking in an area and it's covered with trees, especially a high canopy. They've done all these studies and they show you how people feel better. They also provide shade for understory plants. I don't mean that it has to be a dense shade. I'm just a big, big fan of trees. I think we need more trees.
0: Quite a bit of caterpillars in there for the birds too, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. The white oak, Quercus alba, I don't know if you're familiar, probably you are with Doug Tallamy. Yeah. He said it was four to 500 species of moss that the white oak is a host for. That's a lot. There aren't many trees that provide food for that many different species of caterpillars. The black gum tree is one of my favorites. It's one of the first ones to show fall color. You'll be driving along and you'll see a bright red leaf. That's probably going to be a black gum or a Nyssa sylvatica. It's a tree I've often loved. As it matures, the bark takes on sort of that chunky alligator look.
0: You're involved with Piedmont Park Conservancy. Could you tell us what part trees play in the park?
1: I work for Piedmont Park Conservancy. The Conservancy is the nonprofit that supports Piedmont Park, which is a city park. It's our central park in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a 200 acre park, it's free and open to the public every day of the year. We get lots and lots of visitors trees are critical in the park. I'm fascinated with the tree canopy and how we can keep it going and thriving and seeing the different critters that park supports. We have all sorts of birds. It's a wonderful for being in the middle of a city to have 200 acres and all these trees. And we do have a lake. Trees in an urban setting have a tougher time. Soil compaction, storm damage, aging out, Physical damage from events, maybe someone runs into a tree with a truck, we have to be thinking ahead. So when people often see the park, they may think, oh, there's plenty of trees you don't need anymore. But I'm thinking about the next 10 years and the next 20 years and the next 30 years been a great education for why tree canopy is important. Because if you think of a public park or any big area without trees and how different it would be and how it changes, the temperature in the park is so much cooler in the summer than it is a mile away in an area with only buildings. To me, it's common sense. If you're not familiar with it, you may not realize what a difference it can make in the environment.
0: Piedmont Park was originally a World's Fair site. Is there any trees still from that era?
1: The park dates back to the... Late 1800s, it was the site of the Big World's Fair, and there are some trees that are easily over 100 years old, but plenty have aged out or are getting old and need to be replaced. Some have died. We work with Trees Atlanta, which is a nonprofit that works throughout Atlanta and the surrounding suburbs planting trees. They help us get the trees. They provide the trees. They help us plant them, and then they maintain them for two years. I think the best time in the South to plant trees is fall, through early, early spring for the greatest success. Right about April, end of April, that is really actually pushing the envelope for planting trees. I'm not going to say that for perennials and shrubs, but for trees, because you really want them to have a chance to put out roots before we get into the hot, hot weather. So we'll be planning now for what we're going to be planting in the fall. We focus on native plants because they are the best adapted to The area. Over time, things change. I used to recommend the lace bark elm, and I would not recommend it anymore to anyone in an urban setting because it seeds all over the park. It's got a beautiful bark and small foliage, so I always thought it was a good tree for front yards, and it may still be, but in an urban setting, it seeds all over and provides lots of competition when we'd rather have other trees thriving.
0: I'm showing my ignorance here. Is that a native tree or not? I don't think it is, is it? No, it's not.
1: My point is non-natives are fine. We have some beautiful flowering cherries, limited number, in the park, and they seem to do pretty well. Certain trees, like the lace bark elm, it's called Ulmus parvifolia. It is not a native elm, and it has a beautiful peely type of bark and small leaves, but it turns out 10 years later, it's pretty invasive. It's seeding all over the park. We try to get rid of them on a regular basis. Since I manage volunteers, we do spend a a good bit of time spreading mulch to protect trees and protect plants and also removing invasive plants. There's even a program with the Atlanta Zoo whereby they have a list of plants that they will use for browse for their animals. One summer, we collected bags of fresh lace bark elm foliage, and they would come pick it up at the end of the day and take it back to the zoo to feed the animals.
0: Turn it into compost then. <laughs> so process it through. <laughs>
1: That's right.
0: (laughs) Do you know which animal liked that?
1: They have a very long list of who eats what. Interesting to me is that they did not want any English ivy or Japanese honeysuckle. There were certain things that you could not collect.
0: What is your earliest garden memory?
1: My grandmother grew up on a farm in Waseon, Ohio. I know she was exposed to gardening in the most basic way, growing food. Her mother always had flowers. When she got older, she actually went to college, which was pretty unusual in her time, and became a teacher. When she retired to Florida, would go visit my grandmother. She always had gardenias. Her garden was never elaborate or fancy, but it was perfectly tended. And she had gardenias. And I just remember the fragrance and how much I loved it. And I still love fragrant plants and seek them out. I spent my childhood playing outside in Miami, Florida, and I climbed trees and built tree houses, and we had banana trees in our backyard and orchid trees on the side yard, and I didn't grow up in a family of gardeners, but I loved the outdoors and I love plants. When I was in high school, I got a job at a nursery after school. That's where everything took off from there.
0: Is that when you decided to pursue horticulture as a profession?
1: Well, I got that job in high school after school, and then I went to college for two years and thought, what am I going to study? I'm going to study horticulture. And then I had some wonderful opportunities. I worked as an assistant gardener at the Australian embassy in Washington, DC at the residence, worked at a public garden. And then I went up to Swarthmore, Pennsylvania and worked at Swarthmore College. They had an arboretum on the campus. I was being paid to learn. It was wonderful. Then I started writing about plants. Fortunate that my mother is an English teacher and helped me with all my editing and all my writing.
0: Did you think that writing would lead to you becoming a garden communicator?
1: I never had a big plan. I One thing led to another. I still enjoy writing, enjoy communicating about gardens, and I still give lectures, not as much as I used to, just because I'm pretty busy with my job. And then I had an opportunity to host a Gardener's Diary on HGTV, which was just wonderful, and I did that for 13 years. Traveled around the country meeting great gardeners, learning all about why they do what they do and how they do it. Everyone from Gordon White, the, a real brain surgeon in Austin, Texas, who gardened for therapy and relaxation. I said, what about your hands? He had to be careful. People that lived in the school bus in Tennessee and the people that had a beautiful olive orchard in California. The common bond for why I enjoyed working as a host for a gardener's diary, the people and their stories, they were so great. Each one was different, but they all left an impression on me. Every time, it was humbling to find out what I didn't know. I think that's the great thing about gardening is anyone can do it. Anyone can start at any time. And you can always learn something wherever you go. It doesn't take much to get that satisfaction. I still get a thrill when I go out and I see the first snowdrop in my garden or on the sidewalk blooming down the street from me. I still get pretty excited about it.
0: Everything starts blooming like this time of the year. You walk around the yard and you see what's about to bloom and you have that anticipation.
1: A friend of mine used to joke about this, but we'd say, well, you should have been here yesterday or come back next week. <laughs> and I think as gardeners, it's the anticipation as much as anything else. I enjoy visiting gardens even in the winter because you can see them from a different perspective. You can see the bones of the garden, whatever you want to call it, the framework. I just feel fortunate to do what I do, and I think if I can inspire people to plant a tree or to stop literally and smell the roses, I feel that's a great thing.
0: Any new projects as far as books or anything like that?
1: Oh Gosh, no, not right now. Books are hard. I I really enjoy writing articles because they're manageable, but a book is such a big commitment. I've co-authored a couple of books with Walter Reeves. We wrote The Georgia Gardener's Guide, and then Month by Month, Gardening in Georgia. And then my own book is Proven Plants, Southern Gardens. And I'm still selling that. People tell me it's useful.
0: What do you wish people would do differently when designing or building or growing a garden?
1: I think having a plan or getting advice, if you don't feel confident to draw that plan. I don't mean an elaborate, fancy plan. I mean a plan as to... What do you want out of your garden? How much time do you realistically have to spend maintaining it? What's your budget starting from that point and then moving forward from there so that you have success? And also don't feel pressured to have the perfect lawn because if you live in the South, forget about it. The only way to have a perfect lawn is with lots of chemicals and fertilizer.
0: Do you have a funny plant or garden story for us?
1: A funny story from when I worked as a host on A Gardener's Diary. We traveled around the country and went to all types of gardens. My producers thought it was great fun to try to put me on the spot in terms of, they'd always say, Erica will eat it. Cause she'll eat anything. <laughs> I've been known for my appetite. I'm a normal sized person, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm known to be hungry. There would be blueberries in someone's garden. They'd say, oh, Erica will eat some of those. And I have a good sense of humor about it because I do like to eat and I love to cook, but I'll try most things.
0: Who's been your biggest influencer?
1: My biggest mentor was Judy Zook. And Judy was my boss when I worked at Swarthmore College for the Arboretum. Then she went on to become the director of the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And she just was one of those people that empowered you and made you feel that you could do anything. Also felt that if you did a good job, it just made her look better. So it was just a win-win situation. And she probably one of the most influential people in my horticultural career. She was very knowledgeable, very kind, very gracious. She went on to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, which is a huge garden. And unfortunately, she passed away at a pretty young age. And I went to the service and everybody there from the borough managers or whatever they're called to the people that visited the garden to all of her friends and other mentees, I guess you would call them, was there. And she just was inspiring and kind.
0: What's your most valuable garden mistake?
1: I started a landscape business after college when I didn't know anything. And I think we replaced the same tree three times because my mother's friend was trying to be nice and hire us. Did not pay attention. We were putting the wrong tree in the wrong soil knowing your environment, taking time to soil test or adding soil amendments, making doing the prep work. I think that would be it. And now what I've learned in recent years about how to plant trees has changed. The current recommendations are to dig a bowl, not a hole when planting a tree, making sure that the roots are not wrapped around each other. That's been very interesting seeing better success, especially with the trees we plant in the park. We dig a bowl. We don't dig a hole. We don't amend the soil, but we do want it to drain. We try to avoid planting in 100% clay.
0: What do you plan on applying to your garden this year that you learned last year?
1: I'm not going to add a lot more to my garden. I'm trying to reduce it because it's just too much maintenance. I can't keep up with it.
0: Erica, tell us how people may connect with you.
1: Best way to connect with me would be to email me at Erica E-R-I-C-A-L-G, that's L is in leg, G is in Girl, at Mind M-I-N-D-S-P-R-I-N-G dot com.
0: This has been episode 53, a gardener's walk with Erica Gleisner. Thank you, Erica. You're wonderful. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.